Hello and welcome to the Euro What, episode number 24 for the week of August 27th, 2018. I'm Mike McComb and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey Ben. Hey Mike. And our special guest, Noam Roth. Hey Noam. Hi. Hello Mike. Hello Ben. Ben and I are a couple of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest and Noam is here to help us out by talking about next year's host country, Israel. Thanks for joining us, Noam. How's it going? Uh, everything is going fine. There's a lot of excitement here in Israel. News of which city with the city has not been announced yet. And that's what everybody's talking about right now. Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Eilat. So it's definitely those three that are in the running yes. right now for, for hosting. Okay. Do you have a preference for which city gets selected? Me personally, I would rather Tel Aviv hosted. I I just think it would be much better in Tel Aviv. There, there will be a lot less backlash from the Jewish Orthodox community mm. in Israel if it were in Tel Aviv. And also it's just the city in Tel, of Tel Aviv is much more hospitable to LGBT people who constitute a lot of the fandom of Eurovision, right. who's, you know, going to flock over to Israel for the, the two weeks of, of Eurovision happening here. So I just think that Tel Aviv is going to be much better. On the flip side, Jerusalem has a better venue to offer. So the ones in Tel Aviv are not as big, uh, which means that they're not going to be that many tickets. Mm-hmm. But still, my preference personally is Tel Aviv. All right. Ben, do you have a preference one way or the other? <laughs> I had just been looking at like the various venues. I think that a lot, the one that where they had to build a venue, or I forget if like, all the ones where they were like, yeah, we need to build a stadium, have been dropped at this point. But I think of the three, Tel Aviv had the strongest bid. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. There's a lot of uh, politicians saying that it should be in Jerusalem just because its status as the capital city of Israel is in dispute. And, you know, that should be a reason to do it there. But I personally think at the end of the day, it's supposed to be a good television show. And that should be the number one criteria and not some political agenda or anything. We're not trying to prove anything. We're just going to put a good show for Europe and the world and Australia. Yep. <laughs> yes. Don't, and, don't forget Australia. Yeah. yeah uh, and, yep. and like the, the, and like those of us over here in the States watching at like 3 PM on a Saturday. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So Noam, you were here. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my name is Noam Roth. I, I'm an Israeli. I have been a Eurovision fan since 1991 when I was about nine years old. I also have a YouTube channel called Eurofreak where I talk about Eurovision Song Contest and I give my predictions and I used to do it in English. Now I do it in Hebrew. I guess it's kind of a mixed language kind of a channel. That's how I came about to be a guest on your podcast. It's so great you're joining us because like there are just so many questions that I have about what Eurovision is like the rest of the year because I've been to the last two contests and it's difficult to get a sense of what the local community, how they feel about the contest or the preparation leading up to it. Like all that we get to see is kind of the end result, but there's this whole year of preparation that goes into every year's contest. So yeah. What is it like 
in Israel right now? Are people really excited about it? Are people, yeah, what, what, what's the general mood? Well, first of all, I think for me, it's a little different because I'm a fan. So right. I follow the contest year round, you know, mm-hmm. when, uh, whenever, I don't know, Slovakia is approached to, find out if they're coming back to the contest or not. I'm on that. I know that as right. soon as it's out because it you, you know, I follow the contest all the time. But for the general public, I guess they kind of the Eurovision comes to their awareness usually during January or February uh, okay. because that's when the national final is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not it's it's like a sh- you know, like a national final show or a couple of shows or just the process is announced. Sometimes, you know, there there have been times in the history of Israel in the contest that it was just, you know, the song and the performer were just decided upon by an internal committee. But even that is, you know, it's all over the newspapers, like the committee is sitting and there have been submissions, I don't know, like 160 songs have been submitted and whatever. Mm-hmm. So that shows up in the local newspapers, usually around about... January, February, that's that's when that happens. Okay. This year, because because we're hosting next year and because of us winning lo- the last contest, it's just perpetually in the media. Eurovision is a very good item for news outlets and uh, newspapers and websites because it just generates a lot of traffic because everybody is now, it's like the hot topic. Everybody wants to talk about it. So whenever anything happens, if like a political figure says something about Eurovision or just now there was that situation where it was unclear whether or not we were going to host or not Mm -hmm. because of the whole budget thing, that exploded all over the local media. Everybody was talking about it. My Facebook feed was nothing but that (laughs) for like two whole days unbelievable but this is a special year when we're host that entire process of waiting to see if you guys were going to still be hosting it in israel was a very interesting week for mike and i just going oh man this is that is our next episode this is gonna be real interesting if news happens in the next couple days yeah i never believed the hype i was like i knew that was unreal and that we're we were going to host it no matter what and these type of situations have happened before when uh ukraine hosted Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago and when Serbia had to host 10 years ago. Uh, So these things have happened before and they were always resolved. It was just a hype and it was just, they were just using Eurovision as a proxy battle for their own agendas. So there really was no real threat. Or at least that's what I believed. Okay. It's really difficult from our perspective just because our sources are mostly just like the Eurovision blogs that are just reporting on what other sites have reported on. So it's like two levels of hearsay at this point. We're getting like third hand news. (laughs) I assume everything is going to work out fine, but man, this must be stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a good story. It's a good story. Whenever Eurovision generates that sort of interest in, in the general public, I'm happy. Before we get too deep into our topic, just kind of want to do a couple of check-ins on some uh, Eurovision stuff that is happening stateside. So Netta's toy is still on the Billboard charts. And in fact, it is at the top of the Dance Club chart. Last week, it reached number one on the Dance Club chart, which is the one that is compiled by surveying DJs across the country. That's 
pretty amazing. Like, I don't know the actual survey process, like how many DJs they're talking to. Like, is it just like New York and LA or, or what the sample is? But that's pretty awesome that it's number one. So <laughs> I don't know when the last time that a Eurovision winner was able to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like the last Eurovision associated act that really had any sort of traction in the US. But that might be ABBA, at least from a trivia perspective, the two big acts that pop up as, as known Eurovision acts in the US are ABBA and Celine Dion. How about Gina G from 1996? That one as well, yeah. Mm, that one's tricky. That Could... one did play on Detroit radio back in 96, 97, whenever that was. And okay. I remember I really liked that song, having no idea that it had Eurovision roots or like... I feel like I saw like uh, one of those Hammer and Tie compilation CDs that was mostly that style <laughs> of music. Yeah. That singled that one out as, as like a song on it. But again, like I don't necessarily... Like my first impression of that song is not as a eurovision track but that, that's a very good point yeah and uh nikki french too she had like really a yeah she had a cover of total eclipse of the heart i think that was around the same time so, so. but again definitely not introduced to her by way of eurovision it's just like yeah let's say that's still like 20 years ago so that is pretty amazing yeah we're very yeah. proud of her the the fact that she is number one is like opening newscasts around the country everybody knows about it here it's so cool. And then there's another chart, the EDM uh, electronic dance music chart. Uh, that one is actually compiled by sales and streams and actual consumer data. And last check, she was at number 27, which is the highest she's been on that chart. And maybe it will be more of an upward trajectory because I, I wouldn't be surprised if the dance club chart is kind of a predictor of performance on the EDM chart because you hear the song at the club and then you go and buy it. I assume that's how it works. I don't go to the club. So <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in the club, you're, you're pulling out Shazam on your phone waiting for five seconds for it to identify the track. Yeah. It was also announced that Toy is going to be one of the songs in the 2019 version of the Just Dance video game series. I've never played the game, but that sounds cool. So congrats. Uh <laughs> yeah, congratulations, Neta. Uh, Glennis Grace, who represented Netherlands in 2005, she had her quarterfinal performance on America's Got Talent this past week. And she advanced to the semifinals. Uh, I think there's, again, I'm not watching the show. I'm like getting everything through Wikipedia and being like, oh, yeah, I should check YouTube. But I have caught the last five minutes of the show while waiting for making it to start mm -hmm. on, on NBC. And that is a, an, I, I still have no clue how the process works there. It feels very much like the, the Lithuanian selection in that it's just constantly on and we're on like week 32 of the same five contestants. <laughs> From what I could tell, as this episode drops, the results of the third quarterfinal will be tonight. And then the first semifinal will be next week, and the second semifinal will be the week after that. I'm not sure which semifinal Glennis will be assigned to. If she advances from that, then there's the final, and then, I don't know, maybe 12 more weeks of this? It, it's just an endless process. But congrats, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems to be going well. I don't know. Like her, her, yeah. her, her song choices are not really my bag. So wish her luck. Yep. There was some news that came out earlier today as we record this that uh, RTP, the Portuguese broadcaster, ended up losing money from hosting Eurovision this year. It cost about 20 million euro uh, to run the contest. They only made about 16 million in ad revenue and ticket sales and that sort of thing. But I don't think that includes like tourist dollars or any of the other benefits that 
come with hosting Eurovision. So for RTP specifically, not great news, but I have to imagine for Lisbon as a whole, it was still a very positive experience. I would like to hope so. Leading up to the contest, there were all these talks about it being, you know, a Eurovision on a budget. And that because there were not going to be any LED Mm -hmm. screens that, that they're trying to cut back on costs and, you know, trying to do it cheaper than in previous years. So actually, this kind of catches me by surprise. But Oh, well. I mean, on the other hand, I'd also like to see uh, cost of Eurovision versus actual money made back over the years just f- to find out if this is to find out how this compares. Is this is this particularly bad? Is this particularly good? I can't s- see like how they would have wasted any money. Maybe they could have had one or two fewer presenters. But I mean, other than that, I mean, it was <laughs> it was it was a really solid show. Like everything was just run so smoothly, especially compared to what was happening in uh, Kiev last year. It was just so well run and well organized. And I, I just have to wonder if it's just maybe how ad revenue works in Portugal because RTP is a broadcaster that that has commercials during its broadcast it's not like BBC where it's commercial free so I think it was like mostly mattress ads that uh, were happening while uh, while watching the final uh, in Lisbon really? so yeah yeah so our budget concerns a major thing that are happening right now in Israel I guess we could I guess we can pivot to the main topic let's see that was so, a real yeah. good pivot Mike yeah yeah it's just like yes yeah, so let's just talk about the economics of Eurovision that's fun so <laughs> I've prepared a slide deck. Let's let's go, let's start with slide one. There are starting to to talk about the budgets and where it's going to come from and who's going to pay for what. Obviously, the broadcaster has to invest money into the competition, but also the the host city also invests money and the government also has to invest money. Well, I don't know if it has to invest money, but it is expected Mm -hmm. that the government will invest money. The Secretary of Tourism is involved. The Secretary of uh, Communication is involved. All these people have like stated that they have the budgets ready for Eurovision 2019. But uh, it's it's the negotiation is between Khan, the broadcaster, and the Israeli government. So we right now it's speculation. There are starting to be talks about how how much money they're going to spend. It's something to talk about, but it's not like they're saying that there's not enough money. They're just trying to say that it's that it will be expensive. Right. And it's one of those things where it's just like, well, yeah, everybody wants it, but like nobody really wants to pay for it. And it, it's just starting to talk about like sums of money where it just kind of stops being real after a while. At least that's kind of my takeaway. Like the most recent controversy with who's going to pay the deposit to like secure hosting Eurovision, where it's like, yeah, oh, yeah and it's going to be 12 million euro. And it's just like, I don't really have a concept of 12 million euro at this point. It's like once you hit like, I don't know the hundred thousand range. It's just like it just it's just, it's just numbers at that point. Yeah. What I know for a fact is that the fact that a country is wealthy is does not say anything about whether or not they're going to lose or make money off of the Eurovision Song Contest. Mm-hmm. The one the Eurovision in Denmark ended up losing a lot of money. I think it was oh, really the least really? profitable Eurovision Song Contest in years. But that's just because of managerial decisions. They they had announced that 
uh, Copenhagen was the host city, and then they realized that their stadiums would not be able to host it because of all these sports events. So they had to move it to a different location where they basically had to build all the infrastructure from scratch. And the company that had to manage the whole thing was ill-prepared and they didn't know that they were going to end up spending so much. You know, Denmark is a very wealthy country. They had, it was abysmal with yeah. with the budget, yeah. with the, that, the Eurovision that they did. That is probably my favorite contest that I've seen. Like that, that was such a fantastic show. Until you mentioned it now, I didn't realize that they had like such terrible budget problems. And yeah, it was, yeah, it's it just was, like it did not show on the screen. a lot. It was very like lucrative and wonderful, but they didn't they, they didn't get a lot back in revenue. So yeah. it was yeah. terrible in terms of like how they managed. Yeah, so it sounds like people in Israel are really excited about the contest. Were you in Lisbon uh, when Israel won or where, where were you the night of the final? I was in Lisbon. This was the first Eurovision Song Contest that I that I actually went to. Oh, awesome. Well, yeah, like the last time I went to a, a Eurovision dress rehearsal was in 1999 in Jerusalem. Oh. And oh. yeah, so this was the first time I I flew out to Eurovision for like the whole two weeks and, oh, wow. and was there every single night for the rehearsals and for the semifinal shows. And boy, was this a good year to go. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was- <laughs> incredible you know standing there in the hall watching the voting like countries came up and and israel was not called yet and we were sure that we were going to lose like we were all positive that we were going to lose and there were a couple of uh portuguese uh men behind me like looking at me saying like why are you worried it is obvious that neda is going to win i was like no she's not (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then and then right at the end it was it was spectacular oh man it was spectacular yeah like i could i could understand why it would be nerve-wracking like especially with the way that the jury voting played out and it really kind of like shocked everybody (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that really reminded me of of you know the Eurovisions of yore mm-hmm. when there was no televoting and and back then voting was just everywhere it was very difficult uh to tell what was going to happen even during voting you know in the in the past years it was always like once voting started it was pretty obvious where things were going mm-hmm. but back then it could anything could go you know, a country could get zero points one m- moment and then 12 points the other. It was, yeah. So that's like, that's Eurovisions of 90s mm-hmm. that I remember. In terms of uh, Israel's participation this coming year, looks like they're going to be using the Rising Star process again. Uh, initially, they it, there were reports that they weren't going to be able to do that just because like there were the expenses of hosting the contest and then trying to do the selection show on top of that would have been too much yeah so so first of all rising star is a show that's not on you know the the national broadcaster okay. it's not okay. on can mm-hmm. it's on uh, uh a different channel so so they're gonna have the rising star but then the twist is that can is going to have one show where they pick someone to go straight to the final of rising star so Khan will have the opportunity to insert their own competitor 
to the rising star final and then after the artist is chosen it's going to go back to khan and they're going to have a show of their own to choose the song that that performer is going to go to eurovision with so it's this very elaborate thing nobody knows how it's going to work exactly but we're very excited it's like everybody wants you know, a piece of this cake that's called Eurovision, and that's just delightful for me as a fan. I kind of like the processes that have, like, sort of separating out the singers from the songs so that you get kind of, I don't know, like, Germany did it a couple years ago. It was kind of a disaster the way that Germany did it, where it was, like, they had six singers, and then they they did a round of that, and then it got cut down to two singers, and then the two singers sang uh, two songs that were up for grabs, and it could be one one of those four perform four performances would move on to the next round and then uh it would be it was possible that it could be like the same singer singing the two different songs which i think may have been what happened or yeah anyway that's how we ended up with that uh song from uh, Lavinia Lavinia is that her name L- the, the Lavin- one that sounded like Titania yeah, yeah yeah so <laughs> <laughs> It's like, well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it sounds like if it's if it's spread out a little bit more, which which this process sounds like it will be, it might work this time. Maybe I don't know. Like my, I tend to really like the selection processes where the artist and their song are together from the start, rather than trying to figure out an artist and then figure out a song because sometimes, like sometimes that works, mm-hmm. but sometimes you get an, an artist where you're where like I feel like the the early years of Azerbaijan's participation they would figure out their person and then they would figure out the song for them mm-hmm. yeah I tend to agree I I I like it less when they choose a, a singer and then they try to fit them with a song because a lot of times the song selection there they try to choose a song that's like appropriate for Eurovision whatever that is I don't really think that that there's such a thing as a song that's appropriate for Eurovision but th- that's what they try to do they try to pick a song that's good for Eurovision yes and 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 that song is not necessarily it doesn't necessarily goes well with the singer because this you know singers usually have their own style and their own shtick and Mm -hmm. with with Neta what happened this year I think they got lucky because she is so diverse is that she could just take any song that they picked for her but this is this song toy is not really up her alley it's not the kind of music that she usually does they just happen to find a performer who's so talented that could take a song like that and make it her own but that's not always the process one thing that occurred to me just on the flip side that i think where when you are matching an artist to a song that's already been chosen uh i think the uk back in like the like 2010 or whenever whenever they had the singer do a a stock aiken waterman song because the the final song uh sounded so generic like they didn't know who was going to win so let's figure out something that no matter if it's a guy singing it, if it's a girl singing it it'll be fine It, it was very much not fine that sounds good to me, which it did not sound good to me at all. No, oh, yeah, and that, that performance was a disaster. <laughs> it's like, oh, anybody can sing this song. It's like, not the person you chose, yeah. but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This will be the fourth time? Uh, well, they've won They've won the contest four times. They haven't yeah. hosted four times. This will be the third time that Israel hosts. Right. We, it, it, right. It's funny, uh, uh, people talk about the fact that Israel wins every 20 years, when in fact they should talk about how Israel hosts 
every 20 years because that's a lot more accurate. Right. Israel hosted right, in 1979 right. and 1999 and now in 2019. Oh, wow. That's, that, that is, as somebody who likes when numbers sync up like that, that's very nice. Yeah. And it yeah. probably helps with budgeting so they can plan ahead for 2039. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Just just put uh, a note in the budget now. Ben, did you want to kind of go over kind of the uh, bullet points of the history of Israel at the contest? I did. Uh, so Israel made their debut in 1973, where they placed fourth, which is the highest ranking debut by a country until about 1994, when Poland debuted and came in second. Uh, and like the big thing that I think I have to explain to people, in addition to just like what Eurovision is, is okay, but, but Israel, Israel isn't, isn't in Europe. But they are within the European broadcasting area, so they are eligible to be a full EBU member, and therefore they can participate. They are the debut uh, non-European country. So Israel has had 42 appearances. They made the final 35 out of 42 times, which is pretty good. They've won four times, come in second back-to-back a couple years. Uh, they've placed third once. Uh, they've never been last, and they've never had the dreaded nul point. Indeed. So we still have we still have those two marks to get. Do you want them? <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, like you have countries uh, like Norway where, where they're very proud of the fact that yeah, we have like no points like six times, or we've come in last six times. Um, I think as a Eurovision fan who likes numbers, I kind of like to have all the all the achievements. So it's like an achievement that we haven't unlocked yet, uh, and I know that everybody would be very sad if it happens. But at least the silver not lining would be like, hey, achievement unlocked. We got the last place. Right. Yeah. It's. it's it's like in like video games where it's just like, oh, your your character died a hundred times. Here's a patch. It's like, yay! Uh, <laughs> in a way, it's its yeah. own achievement. Yeah. Although some of the winning entries, it's unlocked some achievements that are only going to be unlocked once. Like like 1998's winner Dana International being the first trans person to win the contest, which is yeah. amazing. So <laughs> that is pretty amazing. I mean, that year. 1998 was it was not just uh let's let's just say that it was a cornerstone not in eurovision history but also in the lgbt politics in israel Mm -hmm. donna's win paved the way for a lot of things 1998 was the year that tel aviv pride became a huge event funded by the, the city you know nowadays tel aviv pride is known around the world as one of the biggest most vibrant prides in the world and and for sure in the middle east 98 was also the year that lgbt people pushed back against police violence something that became known as the Wigstock riots it was the year that the idf the the israeli army officially dropped its ban on homosexuals serving in classified positions in the army it was just a year that in general the the public opinion visibly changed on issues of lgbt equality i can say that from personal uh, experience my own family i saw how in like one second the second that donna international won she became you know a minute before she was a laughing stock and a minute later she was something to be proud of you know someone that they could be proud of for bringing the contest back to Israel. So it was just this huge political change in the country. And all thanks to Dana International, our very own transgender woman, 
winning the Eurovision Song Contest. How amazing. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And then I also just kind of wanted to bring it back to the first time Israel won in 1978 with Abani B. Just looking at kind of the the research we had done, it looks like there was a a national selection, but like way before uh, there was even a Eurovision in Israel. Uh, just kind of like a, it, sort of like the San Remo Fest. Yeah. Okay. So the Israeli process of choosing the, the song for Eurovision is very well known as the Kdam Eurovision, which funnily just translates to pre Eurovision. But, but Kdam Eurovision was a contest of itself. It was a show of itself. And Abanibi was not chosen on a Kdam Eurovision. It was chosen in the, ne- in a national selection that was, uh, just an annual song festival that is kind of similar to San Remo or the Festivali Kengis. Uh, and this song won during the night. In 1978, when it became apparent that Israel would win, the Jordanian broadcaster cut its transmission and later declared that Belgium had won. Belgium had come in second. Yeah, and also Izal Cohen also returned to the contest in 1985 with a song called Ole Ole, which is still a hit on the dance floors in Israel. So you guys won in 1978 and then hosted in 1979 uh, with the the entry you guys had that year was uh, Hallelujah, which is Milk and Honey, I believe. So 1979, like we mentioned before, that was hosted by Israel in Jerusalem. And, you know, political strife always seems to have something to do, like Israel and the Eurovision, there's always some sort of political thing going on. So Yugoslavia, they -hmm. decided not to participate nor broadcast the contest in 1978 due to political reasons. Turkey actually chose a song and they were going to participate, but they withdrew just three weeks before the contest, also because of political reasons. Also, the host of the 1979 contest, Yerdena Arazi, went on to represent Israel in 1988 as a solo artist. She also represented Israel in 1976 as part of a group. So there's a lot of like Eurovision family going into the 1978 contest. And then, of course, we won back to back. Yeah, then you won again, which is great. But Eurovision is very expensive. And as was the case with like Luxembourg earlier in the history of the contest, didn't have the money to to host the next year. So with 1980, there was sort of like we we had like a brief scare of like, okay, is like Austria going to host next year? But that got resolved. But in this case, finding a new host took long enough that just due to Israeli holidays, you couldn't participate in 1980 once it finally happened in the Netherlands, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So we didn't we didn't get to, to defend our title. I think Israel is the only country that didn't get to defend its title in the history of Eurovision. Looking into what might have happened had the controversy from a couple weeks ago ended up being like, oh, Israel's not going to be hosting, so where does it go? Like, at least uh, in 1980, there didn't seem to be a backup plan because uh, Netherlands wasn't the second place country from the previous year. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I think they, I think they finished 13 out of a field of like 18 or something. It was just like, oh no, we're the only people who can afford it right now. <laughs> so, I guess the EBO just went shopping for a host, is what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that's the last time that that happened. Mm-hmm. So, 1980 was the last contest. That was hosted by a country that did not win the year before. And ever since then, up until today, it's always been the winning country hosting next year. Even three years in a row in Ireland in the 90s. 
Yeah, yes, yeah, we, we just got done chatting about Ireland briefly yeah. in our last episode. So yeah, we are... It all we, comes back <laughs> to Ireland. <laughs> it does. I, I mean, that's one of those achievements to unlock that, like, probably won't be unlocked again. Yeah, I, I would like to talk about the, the hosting in 1999 a little bit because, mm. you know, Israel uh, uh, tries to, I guess, pride itself for its ingenuity and uh, high-tech and startup nation or whatever. So the Eurovision in 1999 was the first time that three hosts were used, and one of them was openly gay. It was the first year that LED screens were used as a backdrop. It was the first year that an orchestra wasn't used. It was the first year that the language rule had been let go. So basically, before that, countries had to sing in their native languages. But in 1999, all of a sudden, Anybody could sing in any language that they wanted. So it was like a first year for a lot of things. That yeah, happened. and those are all major, major changes. Like yeah, that, that, well, that's like when Sweden changed how the voting process worked a couple well, years ago. Like, well, yeah, and just speaking to the, the orchestra thing, just because we were discussing Gina G earlier, like prior to that orchestra rule, you had to have some representation of like the what was going on on stage with your, your music. So for Gina yeah. G's, ooh, ah, just a little bit, you have like two guys essentially playing like these these beige computer terminals <laughs> and some synths yeah yeah one of one of the issues that's been discussed for a lot of this upcoming contest is how shabbat is going to be factored into like the scheduling and how yeah yeah so and, like how, could... how the how the voting works because like friday night is the jury rehearsal which is when the jury votes and that yeah. wasn't an issue in 99 because no it was just, in in, yeah. in 1999 it wasn't an issue at all because well first of all there was no jury it was mm -hmm. it was only televoting uh and also the rehearsals on friday night were officially canceled because of pressure from, you know, orthodox parties within the government. Like I said, I went to the dress rehearsal in Jerusalem in 1999. It was Friday morning. And then after rehearsal, the building was locked and it was opened again only after Shabbat ended right before the competition started. And there's a lot of talk today about whether or not Jerusalem can host. And this restriction is it would be impossible to do something like this next year. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be possible to just, you know, have the dress rehearsal happen in the morning and then lock this, the, the building and just have it empty the entire weekend. It just, it, it is impossible. Yeah. So, and that's that, I guess that ties to what I said in the beginning that that's part of the reason why I would rather Tel Aviv hosted because that would not be a big deal in Tel Aviv. Okay. Would it still be an issue in Tel Aviv, or is it just like just a complete, completely different? Like it, it, it's, I don't know. Like I, I don't have a sense of like how secular and like non secular like the different areas so, of the country are. Or yeah, yeah. So I guess it would be a, an issue in Tel Aviv, just in terms of like the political idea. Mm -hmm. So, so if a politician that is you know orthodox would want to make it into an issue then they would but the fact is that uh the weekends fridays and saturdays in tel aviv everything is open everybody okay. is out it's the city is alive whereas jerusalem if you're if you're there for a weekend on a friday and a saturday 
The city is closed. Okay. It looks like Vienna on a Sunday. It's like everything is closed. Yeah. There's no public transportation. Everyone's indoors. It's scary. It's just like someone's left the like locked the city and left the key. It's that's that's the atmosphere in Jerusalem during the weekend. And that's why you know, it's it's just, it's different. Okay. Yeah, and I was actually in Vienna on a Sunday a couple years ago, and it wasn't great. So, <laughs> yeah, so you know Good what I know. mean. Yeah, yeah. So, awesome. So, are there any other moments from Israel's Eurovision history that uh, you think that people should know about? Yeah, yeah. I have a couple here that, mm-hmm. I've, that I've written down. So, let's, I'm, I'm going to take you back to 1974. The participant, the, the band was named... Kaveret, it was translated into Pugi, uh, but Kaveret actually means a hive, a beehive. They are the most successful group in the history of Israeli music, hands down, there's no question. They consist of seven members, and the Eurovision rules says that they, they can only be six members on stage. So what they did was they had one member serve as the conductor of the orchestra, and that's how... They got that sorted out. Yeah, and the song, which is called Natati La Chayai, translates to I Gave Her My Life. It's actually a protest song against Israeli government policy. There's a very famous lyric that says, that translates to, there's enough room for a state or two. If you know what I mean. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, the 1974 contest is the most fascinating contest, I think, of, of the oh, entire yeah, like Oh, yeah, there's a lot going on. So much stuff is going on in that contest. Yeah. Okay, so another honorable mention is 1982. The song title is Chai, which means alive. Mm-hmm. Eurovision was held in Munich, and Israel sent Ofra Chaza... And the, 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 the words of the song is Am Israel Chai, the people of Israel are alive. And for her, uh, an Israeli woman, Jewish, to sing the people of Israel are alive on German soil in front mm-hmm. of Europe, it was a very special and significant moment for a lot of people in the country. And I'm going to throw in another, like, um, um, like trivia bit. Mm-hmm. into it she won the kdam eurovision the israeli national final but after she won they found out that there was actually a mistake and that she didn't win and the person who actually won was yardena arazi the one who, mm-hmm. that hosted eurovision in 1979 mm-hmm. but yardena decided not to do anything about it and not to like go public and say that she had actually won, and she just let Ofra, you know, go to Germany and represent us instead. Oh, wow. Yeah, very big of her. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So another honorable mention is 1989. Israel sent Gili Netanel. He was 12 years old. He won Kadam Eurovision, but when he was... On Kadamu Vision, they used playback during the taping of that show. So there was a backlash and some of the other contestants said that it was not fair mm. and that he would do horribly at Eurovision itself because he was so young and they didn't know if he could sing. And sure enough, on the night, his voice cracked. He forgot oh, no. his words oh, no. during his performance oh, no. in Luzon. Yeah. 
Oh, that um, oh. <laughs> Yeah, the poor boy. This oh, traumatized geez. him so much. He left the country. He now lives in London and he is not performing and he do- he's not doing anything. Oh, and man. a year later, 1990 was the 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 year that the age res- restriction rule was established at oh, Eurovision. No. Oh, yes. I've never been interested in junior Eurovision just cuz no, but yeah, like this is kind of the, this is just kind of the nightmare scenario that it's just like, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to see that. Like that's, just, oh, that just sounds yeah, so, that, yeah, that, that oh. is, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just cringing. Kid. I'm just cringing. Oh, the poor kid. Yeah. Poor guy. Okay. Moving on. Let's talk about 2005. You guys remember that probably, right? The silence that remains. Hasheket Shanishar. Shiri Maimon, she was the one who represented Israel. She had placed second in the first season of the Israeli Idol. Mm-hmm. She went to Eurovision after she won the Kedam Eurovision. Mm-hmm. And she got to fourth place at Eurovision. And that catapulted her career in Israel in the music scene. She's a very successful singer in Israel. Her entry, The Silence That Remains, is still considered one of the best songs that Israel has sent to the country in its history. And she's actually joining the judges panel in the upcoming season of Rising Star for Eurovision 2019. Oh, so nice. we are going to see her. Yeah, she's going to be one of the judges to choose the Israeli singer for the next contest. Oh, wow. I, I guess that is a question that I have about Eurovision participants. Since they don't really generally get traction here in the US, like we just have no idea like what their careers are after the contest like does eurovision work as a launch pad for a lot of artists or is it really one or two artists each year might see a boost in their career so i think it really depends on how you do at eurovision for some reason people take it a little too seriously here so if an artist succeeds at eurovision and success i guess would be top 10 Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the final. So if an artist succeeds, then, then they are praised and then they go on to having this huge careers. But if a, an artist does not succeed at Eurovision, then they don't. They just go on to, I don't know, do theater like Imri Ziv is mm-hmm. doing and like Chovistar is doing. They, they, you know, they, they qualified, yeah. but they didn't yeah. get into the top 10. So. They don't, they don't go on to having careers like, say, Nadav Gage, who got into ninth place, is having right now. He just, his new single dropped, uh, not long ago. He's, he's having a very successful career in huh. Israel. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And that's a nice segue. Let's talk about Golden Boy for a little bit. So, tw- 2015, Golden Boy, Nadav Gage, that was the year that Israel started playing a different game at Eurovision. That mm-hmm. was the year mm-hmm. that the Israeli team decided that they are playing to win, not just to qualify. You know, some countries just play to qualify, but, you know, and some countries play to win. I think Bulgaria is one country that oh, yeah, you Bul- can, yeah you the can last tell. year's Bulgaria definitely has stepped up their game. Yes, they are playing to win. It's a different ball game. Uh, I would say that Hungary is also one of those countries. I would say that Switzerland, for on the other hand, they're not playing to win. It doesn't seem like they're playing to win. And I have sure no enough, idea what Switzerland is doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you can tell. 
So 2015, I think, was the year that Israel started playing a different game. And sure enough, ever since then, we've been qualifying, you know, four years straight. And we won this year, the last Eurovision. And it's like there's a, a certain drive in the, the Israeli team. They they came in with with fire in their eyes. So oh, yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah, so that all happened in 2015. Something happened. I guess it was this fuse between the, the national broadcaster and, uh, rising star that did it. All of a sudden there were other people in the team, people who came from a, 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 a different channel who didn't know anything about the Eurovision and had this vision. Was it still the Kadam that was being used before? rising star or were, were there some internal selections that were happening at that time yeah so in the the years before 2015 like 2014 and yeah. before that it was there was there was an internal selection to choose the artist and then the artist would usually present like three or four songs for the public right. to decide and those would be you know, presented to the public, but it was never this big show that a lot of people would notice. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, the fans would notice and maybe some, you know, people who were somehow related to the singer, but it was never a big event. Once it went into the Rising Star, which was a big show in Israel, mm-hmm. even before Eurovision um, had anything to do with it. Then it exploded. That's when the younger generation all of a sudden became more aware of it. That's when everybody started forming an opinion about it. You know, yeah, that happened in 2015. The sort of entries that happen like the following year of any contest is like, oh, well, the previous year's winner was like this. Let's send songs like this. So like that's how you end up with songs like Georgia's entry this year, since it was kind of of the style of portugal's entry from 2017 do you think that it's possible that we're just going to get a lot of clones of toy next year on the one hand yes on the other hand no because uh it seems like every like you're saying every year um there's a lot of countries that try to kind of work off whatever song won the year before but those songs never win again so mm-hmm. it's true that, you know, the year after Conchita Worst won, we had a sea of ballads. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. sent in a ballad. But the song that won was not the ballad. Right. Even if that, like, I would like to hope that it means that the, the sound would be more modern. And I think that, that countries will be less afraid to just send in good music and not to try to, I don't know, kind of, kind of, uh, send in something that is their perception of what a Eurovision song should sound like and just go with whatever works in your local music industry, whatever mm-hmm. works there. That's what you should use because that is a representation of your own music style. That's what, you know, the people in your country listen to. That's what they like. That's what you should showcase to Europe and to the world. I sure hope that that's what happens in Israel because mm-hmm. um, there's a music style in Israel uh, that's called Middle Eastern pop or mm-hmm. Mediterranean pop. 
Mediterranean pop is very, very big in Israel. It is the most successful music genre. And, you know, we never send songs that are like that to mm-hmm. Eurovision. The one, you know, the few times we did, uh, I would say that Golden Boy was kind of like that. And I think Toy had a lot of influences of that music genre. And look at them. They were the ones that were successful. Mm-hmm. So I would really hope that Israel sends songs and artists from that music genre. And I hope that the other countries will just choose whatever works in their own billboard charts. Like, choose that. Choose whatever works in your country. Yeah, I mean, I think when uh, Ben and I were talking about, like, the UK's selection process for this year, like, that was what we were hoping for. Because it's like, why why is the UK so bad at this? <laughs> it's just yeah, like, you have, yeah. like, these, one of the strongest music industries in the world. And exactly. it has worldwide reach. And I think Surrey is a great performer. I didn't really care for her song, but if you can get something that is actually, even if it's like number 100 on the UK chart, like it's on the chart. People are paying, enough people are paying attention to it that it is showing up there. So, and I don't know, kind of getting into how Eurovision is kind of like model UN at times. It's just like, yeah, I want to hear what your country, what, what is happening in your country right now. So I kind of, I kind of feel like the um, traditional uh, or successful uh, music industry doesn't really, they don't really take Eurovision seriously. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's that's sad because if they did it would be for it would be everybody's benefit eurovision would be a lot better you know the music industries could benefit from from eurovision you know finding new talent finding uh uh new music from around the world it would just it could be it could do so much good yeah especially if you're like trying to push an artist that you think is like the next hot thing like it's just like could you imagine if like bb rexa was just like okay we're gonna put you in front of like 130 million people show your stuff it just seems like a missed business opportunity i don't know ben ben do you have any thoughts on this please don't put bb rexa on that stage okay <laughs> that's fair that was just the first one that i could uh, we, we keep trying it was, like it was either that or uh dua lipa or like Rita well i mean Aura, if we're, if but, we're gonna yeah. pick an albanian let's pick let's pick dua lipa yeah but yeah <laughs> but th- that <laughs> i think that covers it from my end okay yeah so, ixnay on the eb exa ray okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was just sitting here waiting for you to finish the pig latin on that one yeah yeah <laughs> All right. Well, Noam, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm hoping that we'd be able to check in again uh, as we get farther into uh, Israel's planning process. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I I would love to, you know. To... And when you're here during, if you're here, when you're here during Eurovision Week, then then I would I will show you around. I'll show you around the sites. And uh, we'll have a great time. That'd be great. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Euro What. Thank you for listening. The Euro What podcast is hosted by Mike McComb. That's me. And Ben Smith. That's me. And special thanks again to our guest this week, Noam Roth. Noam, where can folks find you online? Like I said, I have a YouTube channel. It's called Euro Freak. Or you can check out Celebrity Noam or Noam Celeb on YouTube. You can find us on our website at eurowhat.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at eurowhat. If you'd like to contact us by email, we can be reached at esc at whatelseison.tv 
We'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can subscribe to the Euro What on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. Word of mouth is still the best way to get folks to listen, so please be sure to tell your friends about the Euro What podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to try to make sense of what's new in Eurovision. 